Hey, what's up? This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and I'm your host, Sean Dustin. Uh, happy Monday. Today is the 14th, and I have one interview for you this evening. Uh, but first of all, if you are on YouTube, do me a favor and hit that thumb, thumbs the video up, uh, subscribe, hit that little ding thing so you can know when I'm coming on. If you're on Facebook, also do me a favor and uh, share and like this. Uh, we need all the help we can get. The algorithm is not very nice to us if we're not paying them. Uh, and, you know, well, can't always afford to pay for marketing. So I depend on you, the listener. So please, uh, if you can, shoot me a share. Uh, anywhere else on the podcast platforms when this releases, uh, same thing. Uh, do me a favor and give me a subscribe, rate, or a review. That would be awesome. Uh, if you have any questions about the podcast, if you want to, you know, questions about a guest, a past guest, or somebody you may want to be on the show, do me a favor and hit me up at nowhere to go but up now at gmail.com uh, and give me any information or anything that you uh, want to share with me. Uh, I answer all emails. So, feel free to share or reach out. Also got a new website. Um, actually, yeah, nope, that's it. New website is, oh, all right, it's on the bottom there. Nowhere to go but up now, uh, nowhere to go but up pod.com. That's brand new. Some of it's still under, uh, under uh, construction, so uh, bear with me while I get that thing together. And uh, yeah, so let's get to this episode. I'm really excited to talk to uh, Portia uh, Louder, and I met her. Uh, well, it's kind of I'll let uh, well I'll let you hear about how we met in a minute. Let me go ahead and uh, bring in this intro, and we will be with you in just a moment. Sean Dustin spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. Upon release in 2006, he had nothing but the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and legal paperwork. In 2010, he kicked a longtime methamphetamine habit and started the long climb back up the ladder of life. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. If you want transparency and authenticity, you're in the right place. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and this is Sean Dustin. Hey, how's it going? What's up, Portia? I am doing well. How are you doing, Sean? I'm doing great. I am still trying to get used to this new schedule and, uh, you know, the, and figuring it all out to where it it works out and uh, I'm able to uh, bring these episodes to everybody still. So uh, it's, a, it's a work in progress. That's for sure. Right. Right. I feel you. I, uh, I work a couple of days a week at a treatment center. I'm a mom and I do a lot of, um, a lot of support work as well. And then I'm also in the process of getting a book published and lots of things on the side. So trying to figure out how to do what you love 
and also what you need to do to stay healthy is a trick. Yeah, it is a trick. It's definitely a, a challenge to say the least. Um, so yeah, let's, let's get into you and your story. And you did, uh, I think you got sentenced to seven years on federal prison. You did four and a half of those and, uh, you got out and you know, how long ago did you get out? Um, I got out, it'll be two years in August that I got out. I spent a little bit of time at the halfway house and then I've been home. Um, it'll be two years in October. So. Okay. Okay. All right. So in two years, uh, well, first of all, let's, let's get to what got you to prison. Um, <laughs> you're from originally and, and you still live in Utah. I still live in Utah. Yeah. Um, so for me, um, my, I mean, I have an addiction to prescription drugs. Um, fortunately now I've been sober six years and life gets really good when you're sober. I know you get that. Um, so I had years growing up that were challenging for me. And then later in my twenties, I got sober and life got really good for me as it does when you're sober and kind of living by those principles and um, my husband, Chad, and I got married and I had a successful photography business. My husband had a you know, full-time job and I had two children when we got married. And then we started having children when we got, you know, after we were married. And um, people ask, you know, why, how did you get into this? Why would you ever, you know, why would you ever need more than what you had? And I really, I can only just say maybe greed, but also the addiction, my judgment was poor and it was um, I can look back now and see where I went wrong. But at any rate, I went um, it was kind of during the 2008 boom, the real estate boom, and my life was chaotic. I had, um, I believe, four children when I got involved in real estate, two close together that were young, my older children. I had a, a business that was demanding and I thought the ticket out was real estate, do more. And, um, and I remember, you know, when people started introducing the kinds of deals that ended up landing me in prison, they were called equity deals. And I thought mm. there is no way I would get involved in those. It's basically borrow more money than the house is worth, invest that money in a different venture, and then use the, that money to pay for the other investment. And it just, it, you know, it's not based on sound principles. So, um, but in time, yeah, I got involved in those deals and it just, you know, my judgment was really poor. Um, my addiction was got worse and the FBI showed up at my house and that's not something that anybody wants, but it's not something that I had ever experienced. I, I really had never been involved with law enforcement, even though I had struggled with addiction. I hadn't, dealt with that side of things. And so, um, and my first thought was, well, go after somebody that did something wrong. Like I just, you know, I'm not that I'm in the middle. It was gray and I really just wouldn't own it. And I hired attorneys to try to figure out loopholes and how to get out of it. And, um, it just got worse. I basically made things a lot worse for myself. I think if I could have just owned it at that point, if I could have just said, you know what, I got this addiction, I've got this problem. I made these mistakes. I probably would have been sentenced to two years in prison, but I didn't do it that way. And it took me years of, you know, more bad decisions that finally led me into a, a federal courthouse, into the courtroom and 
I was sentenced to the maximum sentence um, based on a plea agreement that I wouldn't sign till the very end and made everybody mad about that too. So I just handled it poorly. And that's, you know, I ended up paying the price for that. So, so when you your drug of choice was um, opiates, painkillers. Yeah, my drug of choice. Um, it started out with as pain pills. In my twenties, I ended up going to street drugs, and that was amphetamines. And then from there, I had four and a half years sober. And when I relapsed, I relapsed on on pain pills again, and then. You know, by the time I got sober, I was using benzos and pain pills and uppers and downers. And I mean, because you can get anything in a pill form that, you know, you can get on the streets. So it's all the same substances. And I was using all of them. And so that was that that took you up until uh, when you got. So did you know what you were doing was illegal when you were when you were doing it? Or you just kind of like you said something (laughs) about the gray area. Well, I mean, what I knew was that in my, I remember thinking I, it, it didn't make sense to do what I would, what people were presenting, you know, and um, I just kept buying lots and flipping lots. And then I got in too deep. Basically, I started buying more than I really could afford. And I had a lot of interest payments due. And so th- it was a way to pull cash out of a property and I mean, there's, in my mind, I used every kind of justification. It was like, well, you know, I didn't fake up a a pay stub. I didn't, you know, fraudulently put documents together. Um, What I did was I was in the middle of these, these, let's say that a house, um, somebody would buy a house for a million dollars, but it's in a neighborhood and has the right square footage to appraise for a million five or $2 million dollars. So we would get the highest appraisal or I would get the highest appraisal that I could. And then I would send it over to a bank um, and and there was a hard money lender involved and appraisers involved. And the bank would say, well, what are you paying for the house? And I'd say, well, I've got it locked up for a million. I want a loan for a million five. Can what do you think the house is worth? And they'd come back and say, well, we've got an appraisal. And a lot of times it would be appraised even higher than what you know, my appraisal came back. So in my mind, the the bank is not the victim. The bank knows what I'm paying for and what I'm borrowing against it. And, but when it all came down, the government said the banks are victims. Um, the market crashed and the government, as everyone knows, bailed the banks out. And really the, they put together these task forces for, um, real estate fraud task force. And it was easy. I mean, I was kind of low hanging fruit and there were just a lot of people, I guess, like me from what I've studied and and read that were in the middle that were easier to get than like big banks, you know? Well, I, I, I don't think it was by accident or coincidence that they went after the little fish to to (laughs) let the big ones go. I know my lawyer said, you know, I said, look, I have information about the banks. And my lawyer said, they don't want information about the banks. They're bailing the banks out. And I just, I couldn't get my arms around that. In my mind, I'm like, this is so unfair. But what I have learned is that my my culpability and my dishonesty um, is what I have to worry about. You know, I don't feel good about what I was doing. And I'm glad, and I, my integrity is much different today because I chose to say, you know what, that's not what I, I'm not, 
you know, I'm not going to be involved in those types of deals. I'm going to do things that make me feel good about myself that I can, you know, there's no, there's just no question. There's no gray. And it's up to the banks and the FBI and everybody else to own their part. I just have to own mine and that will free me. And I do feel very free because it's like, yeah, I know what I did. I paid for it. I owned it. I moved past it. And the government really, I don't have any concerns about their issues, their issue. They'll never be, you know, my, I don't look at them and say, that's who I want to pattern my honesty or integrity after. So, <laughs> so I or, mean, or, or lack thereof. Right. I mean, it's just, that's okay. Like I don't, it's fine. I mean, once I got involved, my lawyer said, it's not personal. It's just business. And I said, no, it's very personal. <laughs> it's my life. It might be just business for them, but for me, it's personal. And, and that's the truth. So. Yeah, you got you got swallowed up in the carnage of of 2008 when they needed some they needed people to to arrest so they could <laughs> so they could so they could say that they were doing something. Yeah, you know, that's hey, look true. look this is what we did. You know, we're we're going after them. Um, you know, I was I had a uh, uh, what was it? It's a true crime documentary series that I I was able to uh, screen. It's called The Con. Mm-hmm. And it's about the 2008 financial crisis, and it's a five-part series or six-part series. And anyways, it, it was the best thing that I've ever seen that has that tells you about that. I mean, it's everything the Big Short didn't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> you well, know. the Big Short does a pretty good job of describing a lot of what happened if you watch that show. There's also a, a TED Talk called How to Rob a Bank from the Inside, and it does a really good job of describing how these institutions actually like funded the FBI not to come in (laughs) and look at them, you know, I'm like, wait a second. (laughs) But, uh, but you can't focus on that because at the end of the day, like my life, once I owned my part, I started getting excited about my future again. I started seeing the experience that I had for what it was, which was an opportunity to learn and grow and and become a better person. I mean, I struggled with addiction. I got time to heal. I got time to to change me. Probably time I've never had in my life, you know. I started life early. I I was in relationships, married young, had kids young, and so for me that time was a time to study, to learn, to heal and change. And um I had plans and I'm not going to let any government conspiracy get in the way of the things that I hope and dream for, you know? That's yeah. Yeah. Feel, so. No, no, that, that, I mean, you know, it, it, you gotta, you gotta be some way, right. <laughs> but it is kind of daunting when you're standing there in a courtroom looking around and you're like, this guy, this guy's the guy that's supposed to be so honest, you know, it's frustrating, but, yeah. but I met a lot of good people in prison that really got a lot worse shake than I did. And, and, I didn't realize because I was white collar, I had lawyers and I had, I mean, my, my situation was very easy and compared, compared to many. So. Yeah. I've talked to quite a few, um, you know, during the, uh, the lockdown, I think about 10 of them that were there on conspiracy charges, ghost dope conspiracies, all of these, these other, you know, things that, that they do and, and tools and mechanisms that they use to, to get people hemmed up in, in these situations for not for long periods of time. I mean, we're not, we're not just talking like slaps on the wrist and right. I mean, we're, we're talking decades, man, yeah. for, for nonviolent crimes. And so, you know, it, it, irregardless if, if you did the crime or not, 
Um, there is a there is a huge problem with over sentencing in the federal system, and you know that needs to be addressed. And that's kind of kind of what I do. You know, I try to you know, mm-hmm. call out those things, or you know, talk to people that have been in those situations where they've done long stints, and like, wow, you know, yeah. how'd you do that? Um, but so, tell me a little bit about your experience while you were inside. Um, you know, it's one thing, you know, it's, it's one thing, cause you're another one of those, uh, women like, like Lynn Espeo, who you were just, you know, yeah, you may have been an addict, but you weren't into like an addict, like I was, where I was already <laughs> hanging out, you know, in, you know, with the, the, the seedy under underbelly of society and could maneuver in, in those circles, you know, you're coming straight out of, um, Utah of all places too, right? (laughs) Um, the Mormon capital of, uh, you know, the country. Right. And like, what was that like for you when you first step foot into, you know, this, uh, when you get, first of all, when you, you probably got to turn yourself in, right? Yeah. I did. I was fortunate because he was totally going to take me. I mean, I really made the judge mad. And so he, I mean, white collar, you usually do get eight weeks to self-surrender, but he wanted to have the marshals shackle me and chain me up and take me out. And, you know, I'm married to a really great guy and my husband was in the courtroom and he just stood up and he fled on my behalf. I've learned the value of lawyers is about this much in comparison (laughs) to, you know, in comparison to a man who loves his wife. And my husband just stood at the podium. He said, please don't do this. We have um, these children and Portia needs the time. We need the time to prepare for this. So he gave us the eight weeks. And I can tell you, Sean, my life, I, I died that day and I was reborn. I mean, it was a total shock to me. You know, I thought, my lawyers, probably because I didn't want to hear anything else, just told me, ah, maybe I'll do probation or a year or whatever. Because, I mean, I I kept, I was just belligerent and made it hard on him. And they just, I wouldn't listen to the truth. And when it came down to it, you know, when I got that sentence, it was like, I, the whole world shifted for me. I didn't see things the same and I never have. I walked out of the courtroom and went home to my children and I felt like time had just frozen. And the only thing that mattered was those little things that I could do, like driving my son to school. I just cried all morning. I was like, what a beautiful thing. You know, all the things I thought were important, the money, the fast life, all that, none of that was important. And, and so, you know, I spent the time with my family. I did reach out on social media to my community and I was fortunate because I had a lot of support. Um, It was on the news. My case was on the news. And so I thought, what do I have to lose? And I just said, I'm hurting. I'm so devastated about, you know, I made this choice, but this is what happened. And I'm, I'm leaving my family and anyone that can help my kids and my husband through it, I would appreciate it. And people just reached out and were great. So I'm a believer in just being open and honest because most people are just good and they want to help. And, and so I, I drove to Dublin, California. Chad drove me there and I walked into um, to Dublin, California. It was an FCI prison. And, you know, I guess maybe I have a little bit of edginess to me because of my addiction years. I don't know. But it wasn't, I was absolutely devastated because 
I was separated from my family. You know, that was just, I couldn't imagine when I looked around and I thought seven years, are you kidding? There's no way. I mean, everything in prison is gray and khaki. It's colorless. It's, and I'm a photographer. Like I love light and color and I'm pretty creative. And so for me to go into that world was just, it took me four days to leave my cell. I was just broken. And when I finally did, <laughs> I sat at a table in the day room with this girl named Bubbles who was looking, she was watching TV. Like she had a, she could watch TV from morning till night. That girl had it down. <laughs> you know, the drug, you know, there's anyway, she would just look over at me and I just cry and look out the window. And every now and then she'd say, it's okay, honey, you're going to be okay. You just keep breathing. The pain will go away. And I thought, there's no way I can do this, you know, but, uh, I got myself together and walked over to the track and I just had a real firm conversation with myself, just said, you have to get it together. You have too many people that believe in you and depend on you. And, you know, it's interesting because when I was walking around the track, I remembered I had a therapist that I was supposed to meet with before I got sentenced to help me prepare. And I said to him, you know, because here I am, white collar, right? So I get all the advantages. <laughs> Doesn't that sound funny? I mean, most people get locked up and they take everything you have. Me, I have a therapist to prepare <laughs> yeah. for, my, for my sentencing. But anyway, the therapist said, uh, I said, how can I prepare? I can't imagine leaving my family for a year. How could I be prepared for seven? And he goes, well, Portia, prison would be hard. He said, but you know, in prison, you could still become an amazing person. If you stayed out here and stayed active in your addiction, you wouldn't be able to do that. And for some reason that stuck with me. And I thought, I am going to become an amazing person, you know? And yeah. I, I really made a commitment to just to use that time um, the best way I could. But it took me a couple of years until I could find peace. I mean, it really did, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I mean, it, it's it's definitely a, a, a shocker, you know, anytime when you first go to prison. Um, I was actually at FCI uh, Dublin as well. I, I did a layover there uh, on my transit to... Uh, to Sheridan, Oregon from Las Vegas. Yeah. And we so got you were federal. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. We got a whole unit to ourselves because they couldn't allow, uh, sentenced people to be with uh unsentenced people and so we got a whole, whole unit to ourselves there was like maybe 13 or 14 of us and uh we got stuck here because that's when the, the one year the overpass to go to from shasta over into the mountains it uh it, it shut down it was it was snowed out for like two weeks we had to we were stuck there oh yeah well and i can i can I mean, as a girl who knows, because I got transferred around a little bit, it's not, we don't travel first class. No. <laughs> you're chained, you're shackled, you're black boxed, you're put on con air. The first time that happened to me, you know, they chained and shackled me and pulled me out and the marshals show up in combat gear with shotguns. And I'm like, I'm just a real estate person. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? And the girl, they hand me one of those nasty bologna sandwiches. And the girl next to me goes, don't you dare eat that. She goes, you might get sick. And they're not going to let you use the bathroom for a good 18 hours. She's like, you are going to be on this plane for a while. And I was like, oh, <sighs> no. You know, it's so awful. But. Yeah, that food is is definitely not not <laughs> kosher. Them, them bologna, them bologna <laughs> sandwiches are disgusting. 
Um, I got to experience things I never would have, you know, so. So, yeah. So a lot of times when, you know, people will go away, um, like I, you had more time than I did. Uh, when I got somewhere, it was, you know, oh, I was there for a little bit, got comfortable and it's all right, time to go again. Right. You know, cause I didn't have enough, a uh, lot of time. Yeah. So, um, what I do hear about a lot of the females that go and spend time in, in the camps that they make a lot of uh, lasting friendships and, you know, relationships with, uh, with other women that are there and because of, you know, circumstances and, you know, just people are look a lot of, a lot of folks that are, are locked up just made one bad decision. Yeah. You know, they made a bad choice or, you know, they were wrapped up in addiction or childhood trauma, you know, something that was untreated and just, you know, left to to do with whatever, you yeah. know, and, and they never really dealt with those issues. And, you know, that's what happens when you have, you know, untreated trauma. I always say that, uh, you know, what the number one public safety issue should be untreated trauma, not yeah. what, what it is, because whatever every. You know what I mean? Because everything that we see that plays out is because of some trauma that you haven't got over and, you know, you're, you're punishing yourself or yeah. numbing yourself, you know, for whatever the reason is. Um, so right. yeah, it, uh, it's definitely, um, something like that. But did you make any, uh, any lasting friendships while you were there? Yeah, I, um, well, first of all, I did, all, I did four years in high security and then I went to a camp my last seven months in California and I met people that are my dearest friends. Um, I met the most amazing people and, you know, a couple of them. Um, yeah, I just, my life was forever changed by people's, the women in prison who just supported me and helped me despite their challenges. Um, people who were strong, who had gone through so much as children, like you say, you know, grew up with with addicts as parents, grew up in the criminal lifestyle, wanted to change their life and do better. People that had nothing to their name and would still give me anything they had. Women really do. I don't know about the men, but, you know, actually, when I got to the halfway house, I felt like the men were the same. Like, there's just something about being in that environment I find to be very human and connecting. Um, I really felt strange when I got out. I was like, where is all, you know, neighbors that don't even talk to each other seemed weird because in prison, <laughs> you just, you just know what everyone's going through. It just, I missed the connection. I really did. I, I work at a treatment center so I can stay connected. Yeah. Um, and I, in fact, we both share, we both went down to the other side Academy and talked, And that's what I told those guys. I said, I, you guys have something so cool here, you know, and just, I, I love that place because I love that connection and it just, it, it's cool. It's really cool. So do you know that I stayed there on, on the, uh, on the premises, right? So I was in the, like the, the, I guess the, wow, the retirement home or the elderly yeah. home yeah. next door. I stayed in, in those, uh, in one of those rooms there and I was there for, I think three days. I was only supposed to stay for two. And then I was like, you know, I, I, I just liked that place, that place. <laughs> I don't know what to, I, I mean. I couldn't, it was so crazy. Like I, it had been a while since I'd cried and the warmth yeah. and the love that I felt inside that yep. place with everybody. It was like so overwhelming. Yeah. 
It's like, awesome. I love it. I would go down there anytime. <laughs> I wish they'd just let me work there for free, you know? <laughs> That's what I told him. I said, Hey, do you, can, do you, you need to, you need to, to, to like yeah. come up with some sort of a, uh, like a, a refresher. Yeah. For some, for you know, for somebody who's been through, you know, treatment or you know something like this, and you know, not be for any other reason, put me to work, man. I just, yeah. it, just being able to immerse myself there and talk to everybody, and you know, have them come up and ask me questions, and I'm asking them questions and learning about the whole, you know, what he's doing, yeah. uh, was really cool, and the fact that he allowed me to come up there. And, uh, and just take a look at his whole operation and, you know, how he did it and, you know, what, you know, what it's about. And, uh, even, I, I even got, I even got snagged up in the, uh, in the, what do they call that? That group that they had. Yeah. Game night. <laughs> well, Ugh. so did you not do, um, so I, I was in a treatment program in prison for a year and a half. Well, for a year, they kept me a little longer. Um, that was a therapeutic community. So I could totally relate. I'm all, I mean, the game was what we did every day, all day. And it yeah. wasn't, I mean, I'm sure, did you ever, well, you didn't do very much time in federal, did you? No. So I went to a, a, uh, a therapeutic community when I was like 16 okay. and it was for adolescents and, you know, they had the confrontation group where, you know, right. as soon as they put you on the hot seat, you put your thumbs up, the right. people next to you get up, move to the other seats and then they just tear in on you. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I want to confront you on the fact that you manipulate everybody in here. <laughs> and, right. And I used to get, oh my God, I was so, up, huh? oh yeah, yeah. Cause you know, I was only supposed to go there for six months and in a therapeutic community, it doesn't have anything to do with time. It has to do with progress. Right. <laughs> they and, kept you there for two years, right? 16 months. I, oh, I stayed wow. there. Yes. It was 16 months. And I ended up, uh, like it was probably like the, the, the year mark. And I'm like, God, how I'm never going to get out of here. Yeah. And so I was like, well, I guess I better just sort of buy into the program and, you know, fake it till I make it, you know, th <laughs> that they say, and stop trying to manipulate the situations and everything that I was doing in there that was keeping me, uh, yeah. you know, stuck. Right. I was right. stubborn, man. And yeah. I mean, it, it took me even like, even after that, like I said, it was, it was so, um, like, I was just not like, I didn't realize what I had. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, there are people pay good money to be at places like this. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to be able to take a look at yourself and, you know, your, your, how you operate and, you know, try to change that, uh, was pretty cool, but I, I didn't, you know, I didn't respect it. I, you know, stayed clean a little bit long after that and then phew, back down again. And didn't get and then and that lasted until like my early 40s so and yeah. so from 18 till 40 that was another 20 22 years yeah so well it, i get it it's it was not what i wanted to do the last thing i wanted to do was go to a government-run treatment program i'm like why would i think the government has anything to teach me you know but that program was the best part of prison i learned so much um I cared so deeply about the women in that program and we really just worked through things together and it was life-changing. And I, I do a lot of that kind of work now at the treatment center that I work at and it's, and I love it. You know, I love it. It's like, I found a passion I didn't know I had. And um, yeah, I, I wouldn't change going to prison. I mean, I am, 
by the end of prison, it was no longer prison to me. I really did free myself. You know, by the end, I felt a lot of joy and gratitude for, for every day. Um, and I was nervous to get out. A lot of people think, oh, I'm going to do great. And I had friends that thought that. And I was like, eh. you know, and they <laughs> didn't do great. <laughs> it's not that easy to get out. And I see that at the treatment center, too. The girls, when they come in there, they find happiness because they get rid of their phones, they get rid of their drugs, and they connect with each other. And and then it's hard when you get back out. So, Well, you know what, what Johan Hari says. He says that the opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And me too. I mean, you know, the more you're connected with your community, the more you're connected with your work, your purpose, whatever, whatever that is, or working towards that, yeah. right? You know, finding what it is first and then trying to work towards it. I mean, that's literally where, you know, it, uh, where it goes, you know, um, and that's where all the magic is. And so, yeah, absolutely. So I just want to say what's up. Well, I had some folks in the clubhouse. Brittany's in there. What's up, Brittany? Thanks for stopping by. Uh, this is actually the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast live stream that I pipe into Clubhouse as well. Uh, sometimes I get people in here listening, sometimes not. It's just a little, another thing that I do uh, for the show uh, to try to get listenership. So uh, thank you for joining, Brittany. And we're talking with Portia Louder, who spent four and a half years in federal prison. Uh, you had a seven-year sentence. So you got some time off for the RDAP, right? Yeah, I got a year off for RDAP, okay. um, got a year of good time, and then I got a, some time in a halfway house. So, And then I had a little bit of pretrial time because uh, they locked me up for a mental evaluation, and so I got that time applied towards it too. So I ended up, it was just over four and a half that I did um, in federal prison. So you th prison saved you. I mean, sometimes you hear that, you know, a lot of people, it sounds the weirdest when somebody says that, but yeah. I mean, for some people, you know, this was what they needed to get back on track, you know, for some folks th that doesn't work out that way, but for some it does. Yeah. Prison was extremely hard. Hardest thing I ever did. Um, but it changed my life for the better. But I don't know that it was prison that did it. It was just that I wanted a better life, mm -hmm. you know, and I got, I had the time to, to take, to work on me. Um, I, there are, I don't, I don't want to do away with prisons. Like I, I think that they're necessary, but I don't, you know, I, I wish that we could run prisons about like they run the other side Academy. I mean, if we could really have people engaging and, you know, they had an opportunity to change and show up and work and, you know, hold each other and themselves accountable, I think that we would have a lot better society. And because a lot of, like you say, a lot of the people that are in prison are broken, um, everyone, but, but there's some that are broken, really broken, that have been so traumatized and we can lock them up for 10 years, 20 years, whatever, but you know, it's not, it's not helping things. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, no, it, it, it's not. And so for somebody who like myself, um, a lot of my, my behaviors were from years of learning how to manipulate things, uh, years of trying to get out of work, 
you know, there that's that's a thing, right? I, I didn't want to go ha- have a job, so you know, I did uh, whatever I had to do to get around it, right? And yeah. uh, you know, it's uh, in these habits, you know, from lying, cheating, stealing, um, yeah. manipulating, you know, all of these things were learned habits that uh, you know, became behaviors that were really hard to, I mean, once they get ingrained and in that subconscious, they're really hard to get rid of because it's almost second nature. Like I would lie about stuff for no reason. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just somebody would like girlfriend would ask me something. Some, some, some bullshit. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, you know, it took a while to break and, you know, a lot of times that's what therapeutic communities are. So, um, so important. And also to have your, your peers, you know, people that have been there and done that, not professionals that get their information from a book and can, and can't relate to anything that you're talking about other than the fact that we're both people. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And so that's why I think they're very effective and, you know, you, you, they call you on your, on your shit, you know, you can't do that in prison. You know, th- that, that doesn't exist there. You don't say, Hey, I want to, I want to call you on your, you know, I don't, I don't <laughs> well, like how you keep lying to all the p- people. <laughs> well, we did do that in our community, but it wasn't easy because, you know, the officers all go home and then you're sleeping with one eye open, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not easy, but I, I learned how to set boundaries. And I also, I think I had a desire to, um, rebuild my integrity. I mean, I took a pretty solid look at the, I felt like I had crashed. I had fallen so far. I had had, you know, I had gotten sober and I had years that were good and right. And I was happy. And so to then take a, a jump off that ledge again and have it go, end up in prison for me, I really had so much pain for the choices that I made lost financially. I took us to a terrible level financially. And then just, um, my children, hurting my children and my husband. And I I didn't ever want to suffer like that again. I didn't ever want to hurt the people I loved again. And so I was willing to do whatever. I mean, I was studying and reading and trying to figure it out. But once I got into treatment, I was able to see another way to improve my life. However, I think that what really changed things for me was when I, um, and I've shared this before, but a a woman in treatment stood up and was completely honest about everything that she had ever done. And when I saw her do that and I felt it, I knew that there was such power in just taking full ownership of your life, you know? And that was, that became my mantra. It was like, just own it, move past it. If I did something, own it and, and go back and own every decision that I made. I'm here a hundred percent because of me. Like you said earlier, yeah, was it, did it all go right? Was did they investigate the banks? No, doesn't matter. I know what I did wrong. That's what I have to own. That's the power of my life today was I take 100% responsibility for where I've been and where I'm going, you know? So, yeah, that's great. So that brings me into another topic that I want to touch on is your children and the effect on your family. Uh, Cause a lot of times we don't, we don't really get a whole lot into that with these stories of the impact that, that we made on others, right? Oh, it's been really difficult. I mean, even under the best circumstances, which is my children had their father in the home. My oldest daughter was in her twenties. My older son was in his late twenties. They were married and they could help the younger kids. Um, 
we had a community that stepped in. My kids are still, it, it was very difficult for them. And in some cases still is. We're working through that in therapy and other things. But the thing is, you know, my daughter just brought this up. She was upset at me earlier and she said, this is not because I'm setting boundaries. <laughs> this is not how I was raised. Dad didn't do it this way. And I said, okay, I get that. And she said, and you were a mess before you went to prison. She's like, I mean, it was never right with us. And she's right, you know, and I said, well, all I can do is do it right now, you know, and that's, that's just where I'm at. I just, the best that I can do now, and it's not going to help you for me to not set boundaries for you, even though I may have not been, you know, had it together before I'm doing my best today. That's all I can do is I just, I'm consistent. I show up, I keep myself, you know, I go to I work where I can get therapy. I stay engaged in treatment and, you know, that's it. You just, it's a journey. It took me a while to get as messed up as things were, and it's going to take some time to heal. And, and that's, you know, hopefully my kids will someday see the value in the experience the way I do, but that, you know, they didn't choose it like I did. So yeah. Yeah. It's challenging. I, I could imagine. I, I definitely could imagine that, you know, I, I was lucky. Mine was, uh, was too young, but I'd also, you know, lost uh, custody to, or lost my parental rights to my daughter, yeah. which I mean, we're in contact now, but I mean, she's 21. So that was 18 months. The last time I, I had actually seen her and still, I haven't seen her. I've talked to her on the phone, but yeah. I haven't seen her since she was 18 months old. So, yeah. Well, it's definitely, you know, you, when you go through these, these periods in your life, um, and you know, you look back at the carnage in the wake of, of the destructive behavior and, and the things that you left behind, uh, it, it's, it could be sobering, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and even when, even when you, you are sober, it's like, wow, you know, yeah. like how did, how did how did that even happen? Yeah. And, uh, so like I'm, I have one on the 23rd where it's going to be my, uh, my ex, uh, my daughter's mom who did that. I'm yeah. going to have her on, on the right show. On. And so I can hear like, how did, how did I affect you? How did my behavior? Did yeah. yeah. How did I, how did I hurt you? How did I, what, you know what I mean? I want to hear your perspective of, of where That's we were cool. at that point in time, you know, because yeah. I think it's important. It's so important. I think if I've learned anything, um, I mean, one of the more important things that I learned, I should say, I learned a lot of things, but one of the more important things that I learned was that um, people who have hurt others, that kind of pain is awful, you know, and especially for women who have hurt their children. I have a lot of compassion because I know what it takes to rise out of those ashes, to, to take responsibility to heal, forgive yourself, ask the people that you've hurt that you, you know, how did I hurt you? Please tell me because that's part of the healing for them. And it's part of making amends. And so I try to be um, open and be willing to listen to how I hurt my kids, because I think that that, that they need to be able to tell me that, you know, I don't want them to carry that stuff. Yeah. And so I think that's really cool that you're doing that. And I think if we could, you know, I saw a lot of women who suffered deeply because of the choices that they made and it didn't, it, it won't help. It won't help the people that they hurt or anyone else to beat on him. The best thing we can do is just basically say, you can do this. You know, yeah. you're strong, you're brave. You can take ownership of this. You can make this right. And 
because all kids, even though, you know, they may be angry, um, I think that they want a relationship with their parents, no mm -hmm. matter how, you know, they do. They want to know we're fundamental in their life. We're part of who they are. I'm sure your daughter looks at you and thinks, you know, especially as we get it together, it gives them strength in their life, too, in their identity. And so I think that's really important to to try to do to continue that healing, not just for yourself, but for your your children. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we just got to, you know, th things are the way that they are. And, you know, we have a choice of how we move forward through it. Right. Right. And, you know, the more the more we hide from who we were, the 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 more well, it has control over over who, who, who we become. Could not say it better. You get the power to move forward by owning where you're at. Once you say, I did this, then you then you can look at it and say, if I chose this, then I can choose something different. And it gives you the power to move forward with your life. Like I am such a advocate for complete ownership. And um, I just have found that to be so empowering in my life. And definitely I have a lot of respect for people that are just willing to say, I did this. And this is, and I'm doing different now. Maybe, you know, it's kind of cool because, you know, I recently had an experience with my daughter, my youngest one, and it was painful for me to know some of the things that she went through. And um, I, I was pretty hard on myself, you know, as I thought back about, gosh, these, this is because of me and the choices that I made. And then I had a different perspective and I remembered myself at her age and I remembered, you know, that I went through some of the same things and my mom didn't go to prison, but I, I went through those things anyway. And my mom was not in a place that she could help me through it. And I didn't have any judgment towards my mom. I just thought to myself that that was hard for me. And I was able to have some compassion for myself and even for my mother, because I know my mom's mother died when she was young. She didn't have a mother to help her as she became a woman and went through some of these things. And I guess what I came to realize is I'm super grateful that I'm in a place today that I've learned the things that I've learned, that I can show up in her life, help her get some therapy, listen to what she has to say and validate where she's at, because that wasn't done for me. It wasn't done for my mom. And so even though I'm the one that maybe has caused the most, you know, the most pain, I'm also the one that's helping people heal. And that felt really good to me, you know. Yeah, a lot of times that's that's what ends up happening is that you know we go through these things and now we're we we go to look back and pull the people up behind us, you know, yeah. whoever whoever we can. Right. And you know, bring them along the journey or you know, hey, come on, you know, the rising tide raises all ships. Let's go. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So so what what advice would you have for you know let's say there's somebody out there listening right now and you know, maybe they might be struggling with addiction they may be looking at some time uh they may be looking at a at a sentence and in a stint in uh either the federal or state prison yeah what would what would you what what advice would you give to to uh, uh them out there well my first the first thing I would say would be never give up never give up. I have seen people rise from ashes that seemed impossible. You know, the lowest of the low can rise to the greatest heights. So don't you ever give up because there's always something amazing in store for you if you don't. And if you do, you know, don't give up fighting your addiction. If you're going to go to prison, do your best to accept those facts 
it, if it's going to happen and you can accept it, you can find a way to use that time to your benefit. And there, you know, and it's not going to be the prison or the government or anyone else that's going to provide you with any program and, and, and do it for you and don't expect it, you know, just realize that there are, if you are true, if you make a list of the things that you want to accomplish, whether it's, I mean, there's so many good books out there that you could read and learn. I studied and read and learned, and I wrote mission statements and goals and plans and future. I mean, I really did spend my time to build a different future for myself and anybody can do that. And I'm seeing women that I spent time with in prison that are doing that, that are getting out, going to college and, and their lives have just come together in such a cool way. Um, you're so strong. Like anybody that is going to go to prison, you're strong. The, some of the strongest people I met were in prison and some of the most, like when we got together, we could do anything. Um, focus on yourself. Don't focus on the government. Don't look around and focus on the negative because it will eat you up if you can just stay focused on yourself. And ways to do that are journaling. Um, work this, the 12 steps. Get into whatever positive things there are and and just heal, just see the time, you know, be, you could go to, to prison and run amok. You can go to prison and use and do all the dumbest things and manipulate. And if you're a woman, get into unhealthy relationships. All of those things are available to you, but this is your time. Like I saw that four years as a college education, you know, I am leaving better because of it. That is a hundred percent within your power. That's not something the government gets to decide. That's something you get to decide. You get to decide how your time ends and if you choose wisely, you will leave an amazing person and you will attract so much good into your life. It'll just open right up for you. I see it all the time with the women that I spent time with. So don't give up and just choose your path. Don't let anyone else decide for you how it's going to end. That's what I would say. That's great advice too. Hey. Um, so we're going to start winding this down. Um, let's talk a little bit about your blog. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, yeah. So blogged, let, let's promote you. Ah, you don't have to. It's OK. You know, I blogged the whole time that I was in prison. So that was a really good outlet for me. Um, it didn't make the prison very happy, especially the first prison. They transferred me because of it. <laughs> but that was OK, you know, because um, I went to Washington, to Minnesota and it was a better place for me. But um, my blog is uh I mean, I, I share a lot of my experiences on Facebook and on my blog. I will post this on my blog. Recently, what I've done, though, is I say, the last six months or so, I've been, I finished a book and now I'm in the publishing process. So that I expected to be out in February, but I'm thinking it'll be out in October. So that's exciting. And I'll post it on my blog and Facebook and all of that. And yeah, so, I mean, I'm pretty passionate about sharing the humanity of the people I met in prison and to share a different side, you know, um, I just, I just think that it's, it's a shut off world from everybody. People just don't know. Like they think that it's this hardcore locked up raw stuff. And that isn't the side at all that I experienced. I experienced compassion and connection and beauty and transformation. And when the outside world was shut out, we became very human and really supported each other through anything that we were going through. And that's, that's what my book is about. And so, yeah, I hope that, you know, people will read it and it will help some people and I'll, uh, I'll keep posting on my blog. It's, you know, lawsunbroken.com. It's probably going to change. I have somebody that's helping me with all that. And so, but I will post all of that and we will stay in touch. 
Because I, you know, we should. We should stay in touch. <laughs> no, for sure, for sure. You know, uh, David's on my board of directors for my nonprofit. That's so cool. I know we need to talk because I have um, a friend that wants to set up a nonprofit. And it sounds, for me, I have too much going on right now. But I told him I knew somebody who is you. And I said, I need to reach out to him. But And David is a great guy. And, oh, yeah. and that's yeah. one of the reasons I was drawn to you. Um, you just all seem like great guys. And I, I spent, you know, I spent a lot of time with women. It's so fun to, um, like, it was really cool when, when I went up to speak at the other side Academy at the end, Dave got up and he recognized my husband, which I thought was so cool. He's just a good, he's a stand up guy, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and that's pretty cool. So. Yeah, he he is a good dude. And you know what? I forgot to take a picture with him when I was there. I do that so much where I'm just, I'll go to do something and I do it and it's like, okay, all right, this is yeah. done. All right, let's move on to the next thing and it's like, right. oh man, I forgot to take a picture with somebody. <laughs> You'll be back. If you come back, I want to come up there and listen. So you should you should he should have the two of us go up and then um I would I can get a picture with both of you, which would be so cool. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No, I would definitely go back up there. Um, yeah. And you know, that, that place is, like I said, it, it, it's pretty awesome. Um, I have drone footage too, that I took of it that, you know, because I went and I actually did a live interview with three of the former uh, cl- uh, students there. Oh, right on. And so it was, it was live right there in the main, uh, the main hallway. And then I took some drone footage cause I was going to put it all together and, you know, make a whole episode out of it. Right but it, it, I'm still going to do it, but it's, you know, it, it, you're a busy guy. <laughs> yeah. My, my, my appetite is, uh, uh, or no, my stomach is, uh, or my eyes are bigger than my stomach. Right. There you go. There well, it is. I'm, like, right. I'm pretty passionate too. And I have learned like, I, I mean, I have a few people I need to reach out to. I try really hard to just keep my word. If I say I'll do something, do it. But um, once in a while, people reach out and say, hey, and I and I have good intentions. I want to work with them on something, but it just, you can't do it all. You know, you can't do it all. So, yeah, time, time is, is, you know, now that I'm back at work, it's like, oh, like I had all this, this whole 14 months to just like uh, do my thing. Right. And, and, <laughs> and get the, get the podcast going, get the nonprofit going, get everything that I wanted to do going. Right. And, uh, you know, now it's in the point where, okay, now I've got it on track. Now I just need to like, keep it going to where it needs to go. And as I, you know, still work and try to build something up to, yeah. you know, bring in revenue revenue stream. So at some point I can just go bye-bye job. <laughs> there you go. Um, so yeah, I, I appreciate it. I uh, appreciate the support and, and everything. So uh, if you want to go ahead and let everybody know where they can find you, I know we got the laws unbroken.com uh, uh, yeah. right up here on the bottom and then also your Instagram page. Yeah. And the easiest way to find me is Facebook. I mean, I, I write about different prison experiences for some on some different Facebook groups. And I've had a few people reach out and ask me to write some articles and stuff. And I have done that, but most of the stuff I post is just on Facebook, which is Portia P O R T I A uh, Wilcox W I L C O X louder L O U D E R. And anyone that looks up Portia louder will find me. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and wrap this up. Uh, yes. I'm going to pull you down. Uh, hold, hang out for just a second. I'll talk to you as soon as as soon as soon uh, the outro is done. All right. Hey, Sean, thank you so much for inviting me on. 
Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for, for hanging out with me for the evening, man. I really appreciate it. That's great. All right. All right. Bye. So that was a great episode. Another good one. Uh, you know, I love these, these prison stories, you know, the, the humanitarian part of these prison stories, you know, cause there's a lot of different outfits out there that are doing uh, other types of stories, um, which I really think you're, we're doing a disservice uh, when it comes to trying to change public perception, you know, when, you're just talking about the gory parts of prison, the fighting, the, you know, the stabbings and all that other stuff. All you're doing is reinforcing that uh, public perception that, you know, these people belong where they are. And when you can get away from that and you can get in and start stepping into to, to stepping into the humanity, the humanity of people and of these situations and how, you know, not everybody is disposable. Actually, nobody is disposable, you know, just because we made a mistake once doesn't mean that we can't reform ourselves or be reformed. So, you know, the, the, the goal for me and for this podcast and for the nonprofit, for everything that I'm doing going forward is to try to change public perception as to look at the humanity and of these things, you know, some of these situations could be your son, could be your daughter could be your relative. It could be somebody that you know in your life that you care about. You know, it, it, it just could be one bad day, one bad decision, one bad moment, and you'd be in that same situation. So when everybody can start realizing that, you know, we're a lot, we're a lot more similar than we are different and that we are all subject to, you know, one of these situations, if not, you know, in our lifetime, possibly. So anyways, that's enough about me and my soapbox. Uh, Friday is the next uh, uh, broadcast. We'll be talking to uh, a friend of mine, LC, and uh, that'll be at 5 p.m. on Friday, this Friday. So until next time, keep it 100. Stay true to yourself. Everything else is just noise. You've been listening to the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. Sean is a single dad, a union blue-collar guy, and he spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. When he was released from prison in 2006, all he had was the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and some paperwork. Since then, he's turned his life around and shares the struggles and successes on this podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you were moved to connect to the show. Book a guest spot. For merch, Patreon, PayPal, and social media links, go to linktr.ee slash nowhere to go but up. On Instagram at nowhere to go but up now. On Twitter at but up now. On the YouTube channel at nowhere to go but up podcast. See you next time.